Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Starborn by Andrea Norton. Volume 7, Chapter 15, Arena The dull pain that throbbed through Dalgard's skull with every beat of his heart was confusing, and it was hard to think clearly. But the colony scout, soon after he fought his way back to consciousness, had learned that he was imprisoned somewhere in the globe ship just as he now knew that he had been brought across the sea from the continent on which Homeport was situated, and that he had no hope of rescue. He had seen little of his captors, and the guards, who had hustled him from one place of imprisonment to another, had not spoken to him, nor had he tried to communicate with them. At first he had been too sick and confused, then too wary. These were clearly those others, and the conditioning that had surrounded him from birth had instilled in him a deep distrust of the former masters of Astra. Now Dalgard was more alert, and his being brought to this room in what was certainly the center of the alien civilization made him believe he was about to meet the rulers of the enemy. So he stared curiously about him as the guards jostled him through the doorway. On a dais fashioned of heaped-up rainbow-colored pads were three aliens, their legs folded under them at what seemed impossible angles. One wore the black wrappings, the breastplate of the guards, but the other two had indulged their love of color in weird, eye-disturbing combinations of shades in the bandages wrapping the thin limbs and paunchy bodies. They were, as far as he could see through the thick layers of paint overlaying their skins, older than their officer companion, but nothing in their attitude suggested that age had mellowed them. Dalgard was brought to stand before the trio, as before a tribunal of judges. His sword knife had been taken from his belt before he had regained his senses. His hands were twisted behind his back and locked together in a bar and hoop arrangement. He certainly could offer little threat to the company, yet they ringed him in, weapons ready, watching his every move. The scout licked cracked lips. There was one thing they could not control, could not prevent him from doing, Somewhere, not too far away, was help. Not from the Mer people, but he was sure that he had been in contact with another friendly mind. Since the hour of his awakening on board the globe ship, when he had half-consciously sent out an appeal for aid over the band that united him with Sasuri's race and had touched that other consciousness, not the cold alien stream about him, he had been sure that somewhere within the enemy throng was a potential savior. Was it among those who manned the strange flyer, those the Mer people had spied upon, but whom he had yet not seen? Dalgard had striven since that moment of contact to keep in touch with the nebulous other mind, to project his need for help, but he had been unable to enter in freely as he could with his own kind, or with Sasori and the Sea People. Now, even as he stood in the heart of the enemy territory, completely at the mercy of the aliens, he felt more strongly than ever before that another, whose mind he could not enter and yet who was in some queer way sensitive to his appeal, was close at hand. He searched the painted faces before him, trying to probe behind each locked mask, but he was certain that the one he sought was not there. Only he had to be. The contact was so strong. Dalgard's startled eyes went to the wall behind the dais, tried vainly to trace what could only be felt. He would be willing to give a knife oath that the stranger was within seeing, listening distance at this minute. While he was so engrossed in his own problem, 
The guard had moved. The hooped bar that locked his wrist was loosened, and his arms, each tightened the grip of one of the warriors, were brought out before him. The officer on the dais tossed a metal ring to one of the guards. Roughly, the warrior holding Dalgard's left arm forced the band over his hand and jerked it up his forearm as far as it would go. As it winked in the light, the scout was reminded of a similar bracelet he had seen. Where? On the front leg of the snake devil he had shot. The officer produced a second ring and slipped it smoothly over his own arm, adjusting it to touch bare skin and not the wrappings that served him as a sleeve. Dalgard thought he understood. This had to be a device to facilitate communication. And straight away he was wary. When his ancestors had first met the Mer people, they had established a means of speech through touch, the palm of one resting against the palm of the other. In later generations, when they had developed their new senses, physical contact had not been necessary. However, here, Dalgard's eyes narrowed. The line along his jaw was hard. He had always accepted the people's estimate of those others, that their ancient enemies were all-seeing and all-knowing, with mental powers far beyond their own definition or description. Now he half expected to be ruthlessly mind-invaded, stripped of everything the enemy desired to know. So he was astonished when the words that formed in his thoughts were simple, almost childish, and while he was prepared to answer them, another part of him watched and listened waiting for the attack he was sure would come. You are who? What? He forced a look of astonishment, nor did he make the mistake of answering that mentally. If those others did not know he could use the mind speech, why betray his power? I am of the stars, he answered slowly, aloud, using the speech of Homeport. He had so little occasion to talk lately that his voice sounded curiously rusty and harsh in his own ears. Nor had he the least idea of the impression those few archaically accented words would have on one who heard them. To Dalgard's inner surprise, though, the answer did not astonish the interrogator. The alien officer might well have been expecting to hear just that, but he pulled off his own armband before he turned to his fellows with a spurt of twittering speech they used among themselves. While the two civilians were still trilling, the officer edged forward an inch or so and stared at Dalgard intently as he replaced the band. You not look the same as the others! I do not know what you mean. Here are not others like me. One of the civilians twitched at the officer's sleeve, apparently demanding a translation, but the other shook him off impatiently. You come from Sky now? Dalgard shook his head, then realized that gesture might not mean anything to his audience. Long ago before I was, my people came. The alien digested that, then again took off his band before he related to his companions. The excited twitter of their speech scaled up. You travel with the beasts! The alien's accusation came crisply, while the others gabbled. That which hunts could not have tracked you if you did not have the stink of the beast things on you. I know nothing of beasts, Dalgard faced up to that squarely. The sea people are my friends. 
It was hard to read any emotion on those lacquered and bedaubed faces. But before the officer once more broke bracelet contact, Dalgard did sense the other's almost hysterical aversion. The scout might just have admitted to the most revolting practices, as far as the alien was concerned. After he translated, all three of those on the dais were silent. Even the guards edged away from the captive, as if in some manner they might be defiled by proximity. One of the civilians made an emphatic statement, got creakily to his feet, and walked away as if he wanted nothing more to do with this matter. After a second or two of hesitation, his fellow followed his example. The officer turned the bracelet around in his fingers, his dark eyes with their slitted pupils never leaving Dalgard's face. Then he came to a decision. He pushed the ring up his arm, and the words that reached the prisoner were coldly remote, as if the captive were no longer being judged by an intelligent living creature, but something that had no right of existence in a well-ordered universe. Beast! Friends with beast! As the beasts, so shall you end! It is spoken! One of the guards tore the bracelet from Dalgard's arm, trying not to touch the scout's flesh in the process, and those who once more shackled his wrists ostentatiously wiped their hands up and down the wrappings on their thighs afterwards. But before they jabbed him in the movement with the muscles of their weapons, Dalgard located at last the source of that disturbing mental touch, not only located it, but in some manner broke through the existing barrier between the strange mind and his, and communicated as clearly with it as he might have with Sasori, and the excitement of his discovery almost led to self-betrayal. Terran! One, One of those who had traveled with the aliens? Yet he read clearly the other's distrust of that company, the fact that he lay in concealment here without their knowledge, and he was not unfriendly. Surely he could not be a peaceman of Pax. Another fugitive from a newly come colony ship? Dalgard beamed a warning to the other. If he who was free could only reach the Mer people, it might mean the turning point in this whole venture. Dalgard was furiously planning, simplifying, trying to impress the most imperative message on the other mind as he stumbled away in the midst of the guards. The stranger was confused. Apparently Dalgard's arrival, his use of the mind touch, had been an overwhelming surprise. But if he could only make the right move, would make it. The scout from Homeport had no idea what was in store for him, but with one of his own breed here and suspicious of the aliens, he at least had a slim chance. He snapped the thread of communication. Now he must be ready for any opportunity. Rafe watched that amazing apparition go out of the room below. He was shaking with a chill born of no outside cold. First, the shock of hearing that language, queerly accented as the words were. Then, sharp contact, mind to mind. He was being clearly warned against revealing himself. The stranger was a Terran. Rafe would swear to that. So somewhere on this world there was a Terran colony, one of those legendary ships of outlaws who had taken to space during the rule of Pax had made the crossing safely and had established a foothold here. While one part of Rafe's brain fitted together the jigsaw of bits and patches of information, the other section dealt with that message of warning the other had beamed at him. The pilot knew that the captive must be in immediate danger. He could not understand all that had happened in that interview with the aliens, but he had left with the impression that the prisoner had not only been tried but condemned, and it was now up to him to help. 
But how? By the time he got back to the flitter and was able to find Hobart and the others, it might be too late. He had to make the move, and soon, for there had been unmistakable urgency in the captive's message. Rafe's hands fumbled at the grid before him, and then he realized that the opening was far too small to admit him to the room on the other side of the wall. To return to the underground ways might be a waste of time, but he could not see any other course open to him. What if he could not find the captive later? Where in the maze of this half-deserted city could he hope to come across the trail again? Even as he sorted out all the points that could defeat him, Rafe's hands and feet felt for the notched steps that would take him down. He had gone only two floors when he was faced with a grill opening that was much larger. On impulse, he stopped to measure it. Surely he could squeeze through here, if he could work loose the grid. Prying with one hand and a tool from his belt pouch, he struggled not only against the stubborn metal, but against time. That strange metal communication had ceased though he was sure that he still received a trace of it from time to time, just enough to reassure him that the prisoner was alive, and each time it touched him, Rafe redoubled his efforts on the metal clasps of the grid. At last his determination triumphed, and the grill swung out to fall with an appalling clatter to the floor. The pilot thrust his feet through the opening and wriggled desperately through, expecting any moment to confront a reception committee drawn by the noise. But when he reached the floor... The hallway was still vacant. In fact, he was conscious of a hush in the whole building, as if those who made their homes within its walls were elsewhere. That silence acted on him as a spur. Rafe ran along the corridor, trying to subdue the clatter of his space boots, coming to a downward ramp. There he paused, unable to decide whether to go down, until he caught sight of a party of aliens below, walking swiftly enough to suggest they too were in a hurry. The small group was apparently on its way to some gathering, and in it, for the first time, the Terrans saw the women of the aliens, or at least the fully veiled, gliding creatures he guessed were the females of the painted people. There were four of them in the group ahead, escorted by two of the males, and the high fluting of their voices resounded along the corridor as might the cheeping of birds. If the males were colorful in their choice of body wrappings, the females were gorgeous beyond belief as cloudy stuff that had the changing hues of Terran opals frothed about them to completely conceal their figures. The harsher twittering of the men had an impatient note, and the whole party quickened their pace until their glide was close to an undignified trot. Rafe, forced to keep well behind lest his boost betray him, fumed. They did not go into the open, but took another way to slope down once more. Luckily, the journey was not a long one. Ahead was light that suggested the outdoors. Rafe sucked in his breath as he came out a goodly distance behind the aliens. Established in what was once a court, surrounded by the towers and buildings of the city, was a miniature of that other arena where he had seen the dead lizard things. The glittering, gaily-dressed aliens were taking their places on the tiers of seats, but the place had been built to accommodate at least a thousand spectators, now housed less than half that number. If this was the extent of the alien nation, it was the dregs of a dwindling race. Directly below, where Rafe lingered in an aisle dividing the tiers of seats, there was a manhole opening with a barred gate across it, an entrance to the sand-covered enclosure. Unfortunately, the aliens were all clustered close to the oval far from that spot. 
Also, the attention of the audience was firmly riveted on the events below. A door at the sand level had been flung open, and through it was now hustled the prisoner. Either the aliens still possessed some idea of fair play, or they simply hoped to prolong a contest to satisfy their own pleasure, for the captive's hands were unbound, and in them he clutched a spear. Remembering far-off legends of earlier and more savage civilizations on his own world, Rafe was now sure that the lone man below was about to fight for his life. The question was, against what? Another of the mouth-like openings around the edge of the arena opened, and one of the furry people shambled out, weaving weakly from side to side, a spear in his scaled paws. He halted a step or two into the open, his round head swinging from side to side, spittle drooling from his gaping mouth. His body was covered with raw sores and bare patches from which the fur had been torn away, and it was apparent that he had long been the victim of ill usage, if not torture. Shrill cries arose from the alien spectators as the furred one blinked in the light and then sighted the man some feet away. He stiffened, his arm drew back, the spear poised, then as suddenly it dropped to his side and he fell to his knees before wriggling across the sand, his paws held out imploringly to his fellow captive. The cries from the watching aliens were threatening. Several rose on their seats, gesturing to the two below. And Rafe, thankful for their absorption, sped down to the manhole, discovering to his delight it could be readily opened from his side. As he edged it around, there was another sound below. This was no high-pitched fluting from aliens deprived of their sport, but a hissing nightmare cry. Rafe's line of vision, limited by the door, framed a portion of scaled back as it looked immediately below him. His hand went to the blast bombs as he descended the runway, and his boots hit the sand just as the drama below reached its climax. The furred one lay prone in the sand, uncaring. Above that mistreated body, the human stood in the half-crouch of a fighting man, the puny spear pointed up bravely at a mark it could not hope to reach, the soft throat of one of the giant lizards. The reptile did not move to speedily destroy. Instead, hissing, it reared above the two as if studying them with a vicious intelligence, but there was no time to wonder how long it would delay striking. Rafe's strong teeth ripped loose the tag end of the blast bomb, and he lobbed it straight with a practiced arm so that the ball spiraled across the arena to come to rest between the massive hind legs of the lizard. He saw the man's eyes widen as they fastened on him, and then the human captive flung himself to the earth, half covering the body of the furred one. The reptile grabbed in the same instant, its grasping claws cutting only air, and before it could try a second time, the bomb went off. Literally torn apart by the explosion, the creature must have died at once. But the captive moved. He was on his feet again, pulling his companion up with him before the startled spectators could guess what had actually happened. Then, half carrying the other prisoner, he ran, not onward to the waiting Rafe, but for the gate through which he had come into the arena. At the same time, a message beat into the Terran's brain. This way! Avoiding bits of horrible refuse, Rafe obeyed that order, catching up in a couple of strides with the other, linking his arm through the dangling one of the furred creature to take some of the strain from the stranger. Have you any more of those power things? The words came in the archaic speech of his own world. Two more bums, he answered. We may have to blow the gate here, the other panted breathlessly. 
Instead, Rafe drew his stun gun. The gate was already opening. A wedge of the painted warriors heading through. Flamethrowers ready. He sprayed wide and on the highest level. A spout of fire singed the cloth of his tunic across the top of his shoulder as one of the last aliens fired before his legs buckled and he went down. Then, opposition momentarily gone, the two, with their semi-conscious charge, stumbled over the bodies of the guards and reached the corridor beyond. Chapter 16. Surprise Attack So much had happened so quickly during the past hour that Dalgard had no chance to plan or even sort out impressions in his mind. He had to guess as to where the stranger, now taking some of the burden of the wounded merman from him, had sprung from. The other's clothing, the helmet covering his head, were more akin to those worn by the aliens than they were to the dress of the colonists. Yet the man beneath those trappings was of the same breed as his own people, and he could not believe that he was a peaceman of Pax. All he had done here spoke against the legends of those dark Terran days that Dalgard had heard from his childhood. But where had he come from? The only answer could be another outlaw colony ship. We're in the inner ways. Dalgard tried to reach the mind of the merman as they pounded on into the corridors that led from the arena. Do you know these? He had a faint hope that the seaman, because of his longer captivity, might have a route of escape to suggest... Down to the lower levels. The thought came slowly, forced out by a weakening will. Lower levels, the road to the sea. That was what Dalgard had been hoping for, some passage that would run seaward and so to safety, such as he had found with Sasuri in that other city. What are we hunting? The stranger broke in, and Dalgard realized that perhaps the other did not follow the mind talk. His words had an odd inflection, a clipped accent that was new. A lower way, he returned in the speech of his own people. To the right! The merman, struggling against his own weakness, had raised his head and was looking about as one who searches for a familiar landmark. There was a branching way to the right, and Dalgard swung into it, bringing the other two after him. This was a narrow passage, and twice they brushed by sealed doors. It brought them up against a blank wall. The stranger wheeled, his odd weapon ready, for they could hear the shouts of pursuers behind them. But the merman pulled free of Dalgard and went down to the floor to dig with his taloned fingers at some depressions there. Open here, the thought came clearly. Then down. Dalgard went down on one knee, able now to see the outline of a trap door. It had to be pried up. His sword knife was gone. The spear they had given him for the arena he had dropped when he dragged the merman out of danger. He looked to the stranger. About the other's narrow hips was slung a belt from which hung pouches and tools the primitive colonist could not evaluate. But there was also a bush knife, and he reached for it. The knife! The stranger glanced down at the blade he wore in surprise, as if he'd forgotten it. And then with one swift movement he drew it from its sheath and flipped it to Dalgard. On the track behind, the clamor was growing, and the colony scout worked with concentration at his task of fitting the blade into the crack and freeing the door. As soon as there was space enough, the merman's claws recklessly slid under, and he added what strength he could to Dalgard's. The door arose and fell back onto the pavement with a clang, exposing a dark pit. I got them! 
The words burst from the stranger. He had pressed the firing button of his weapon. Where the passage in which they stood met the main corridor, there was an agitated shouting and then sudden silence. Down! The merman had crawled to the edge of the opening, and from it rose a dank, fetid smell. Now that the noise in the corridor was stilled, Dalgard could hear something. The sound of water. How do we get down? He questioned the merman. It is far. There are no climbing holes. Dalgard straightened. Well, he supposed even a leap into that was better than to be taken a second time by those others. But was he ready for such a desperate solution? Is it a long way down? The stranger leaned over to peer into the well. He says so, Dalgard nodded to the merman, and there are no climbing holds. The stranger plucked at the front of his tunic with one hand, still holding his weapon with the other. From an opening he drew a line, and Dalgard grabbed it eagerly, testing the first foot with a sharp jerk. He had never seen such stuff, so light of weight and yet so tough. His delight reached the merman, who sat up to gaze owlishly at the coils the stranger pulled from concealment. They used the door of the well for the lowering beam, hitching the cord about it. Then the merman noosed one end about him and Dalgard, and the door, taking some of the strain, lowered him. The end of the cord was perilously close to the scout's fingers when there was a signaling pull from below, and he was free to reel in the loose line. He turned to the stranger. You go. I'll watch them. The other waved his weapon to the corridor. There was some sense to that, and Dalgard had to agree. He made fast the end of the cord and went into the dark, burning the palm of one hand before he was able to slacken the speed of his descent. Then he landed thigh-deep in water, from which arose an unpleasant smell. All right, come on! He put full force into the thought he beamed at the stranger above. When the other did not obey, Dalgard began to wonder if he should climb to his aid. Had the aliens broken through and overwhelmed the other? Or what had just happened? The rope whisked up out of his hands, and a moment later a voice rang eerily overhead. Clear below! I'm coming down! Dalgard scrambled out of the space under the opening and headed on into the murk where the merman waited. There was a splash as the stranger hit the stream, and the rope lashed down behind him at their united jerk. Where do we go from here? The voice carried through the dark. Scaled fingers hooked about Dalgard's right hand and tugged on him. He reached back in turn and locked grip with the stranger. So united, the three splashed on through the rancid liquid. In time, they came out of the first tunnel into a wider section, but here the odor was worse, catching in their throats, making them sway dizzily. There seemed no end to these ways that Rafe guessed were the drains of the ancient city. Only the merman appeared to have a definite idea of where they were going, though he halted once or twice when they came to a side passage, as if thinking out their course. Since the man from the arena accepted the furred one's guidance, Rafe depended upon it as well, though he wondered if they would ever find their way out into the open again. He was startled by a sudden pain as the hand leading him tightened its grip to bone-bruising force. They had stopped, and the liquid washed about them until Rafe wondered if he would ever feel clean again. When they started on, they moved much more swiftly. His companions were in a hurry, but Rafe was unprepared for the sight that broke as they came out into a high-roofed cavern. There was an odd cold light there, but that light was not all he saw. Drawn up on a ledge rising out of the contaminated stream 
were rows of the furred people, all sitting in silence, bone spears resting across their knees, long knives at their belts. They watched with round, unblinking eyes the three who had just come out of the side passage. The rescued merman loosened his grip on Dalgard's hand and waded forward to confront that quiet, waiting assembly. Neither he nor his fellows made any sound, and Rafe guessed that they had some other form of communication, perhaps the same telepathic ability to broadcast messages that this amazing man beside him displayed. These are members of his tribe, the other explained, sensing that Rafe could not understand. They came here to try to save him, for he is one of their speakers for many. Who are they? Who are you for that matter? Rafe asked the two questions that had been with him ever since the wild adventure had began. They are the people of the sea, our friends, our knife brothers, and I'm from Homeport. My people came from the stars in a ship, but not a ship of this world. We have been here for many years. The mermen were moving now. Several had waded forward to greet their chief, aiding him ashore. But when Rafe moved toward the ledge, Dalgard put out a restraining hand. No, we can't go there until we're summoned. They have their customs, and this is a party for war. This tribe knows not my people, save by rumor. We have to wait. Rafe looked over the ranks of sea folk. The light came from globes borne by every twentieth warrior, a globe in which something that gave off phosphorescent gleams swam around and around. The spears that each merman carried were slender and wickedly barbed, the knives almost sword-length. The pilot remembered the flamethrowers of the aliens and could not see any victory for the merman party. No, no knife blade against the fire. That is not equal. Rafe stared amazed and then irritated that the other had read his thoughts so easily. But what else can be done? Some stand has to be taken, even if the whole tribe goes down to the great dark, because they do it. What do you mean? Rafe demanded. Isn't it true that those others went across the sea to plunder their forgotten storehouse of knowledge? countered the other. He spoke slowly as if he found difficulty in clothing thoughts with words. Susuri said that was why they came. Rafe, remembering what he had seen, the stripping of shelves and tables of the devices that were stored on them, could only nod. Then it's also true that soon they will have worse than fire to hunt us down with, and they will turn against your colony as they will against Homeport, for the mermen and their records have taught us that it is their nature to rule, that they can live in peace only when all living things on this world are their slaves. My colony? Rafe was momentarily diverted. I'm one of a spaceless crew. I am not a member of any colony. Dalgard stared at the stranger. His guess had been right. A new ship, another ship that had recently crossed deep space to find them, had flown the dark wastes, even as the first elders had done. It had to be that more outlaws had come to find this new world. This was wonderful news, news he had to take to Homeport. Only it was news that had to wait, for the sea people had come to a decision of their own. What are they going to do now? Rafe asked. The mermen were not retreating. Instead, they were slipping from the ledge in regular order, forming somewhat crooked ranks in the water. Dalgart did not reply at once, making mind touch not only to ask but to impress his kinship on the sea people. They were united in a single-minded purpose, with failure before them, unless... He turned to the stranger. 
they are going to war upon those others. He who guided us here knows, also, the new knowledge they have brought into the city is dangerous. If an end is not put to it before they can use it, then... He shrugged. The mermen must retreat into the depths, and we, who cannot follow them, well... He made a quick, thrusting gesture, as if using a knife on his own throat. For a time, those others had been growing fewer in number and weaker. Their children are not as many, and sometimes there are years when none are born at all. And they have forgotten so much. But now, perhaps they can increase once more, not only in wisdom and strength of arms, but in numbers. The mermen have kept a watch on them, content to let matters rest, sure that time would defeat them. But now, time no longer fights on our side. Rafe watched the furred people with their short spears and their knives. He recalled that rocky island where the aliens had unleashed the fire. This expeditionary force would not have a chance against that. But, but your, your weapons, weapons would. The words addressed to him were clear, though they had not been spoken aloud. Rafe's hand went to the pocket where two more of the blast bombs rested. And, and this, this is, is your battle as much as, much as ours. ours. But it wasn't. Dalgard had gone too far with that suggestion. Rafe had no ties on this world. The RS-10 was waiting to take him away. It was strictly against all orders, all his training, for him to become involved in alien warfare. The pilot's hand went back to his belt. He was not going to allow himself to be pushed onto anything foolish, whether this colonist could read his mind or not. The first ranks of the mermen had already waded past them, heading into the way down which the escaping prisoners had come. To Rafe's eyes, none of them paid any attention to the two humans as they went, though they were probably in mental touch with his companion. You are already termed one of us in their eyes. Dalgard was careful to use oral speech this time. When you came to our rescue in the arena, they believed that you were of our kind. Do you think you can return to walk safely through the city? So! He drew a hissing breath of surprise when the thought that leaped into Rafe's mind was plain to Dalgard also. You have. There are more of you there. But already those others may be moving against them because of what you've done. Rafe, who had been about to join the mermen, stopped short. That aspect had not struck him before. What had happened to Sariki and the Flitter, to the captain and Lablet, who had been in the heart of the enemy territory when he had challenged the aliens? It would be only logical that the painted people would consider them all dangerous now. He had to get out of here. He had to get back to the Flitter and try and help where unwittingly he had harmed. Dalgard caught up with him. He'd been able to read a little of what had passed through the other's mind, though it was difficult to sort order out of those tangled thoughts. The longer he was with the stranger, the more aware he became of the differences between them. Outwardly, they might appear to be the same species, but inwardly, Dalgard frowned. There was something he had to consider later, when they had a thinking space. But now he could understand the other's agitation. It was very true that those others might turn on the stranger's fellows in retaliation for his deeds. Together they joined the mermen. There was no talk, nothing to break the splashing sound of bodies moving against the current. As they pressed on, Rafe was sure that this was not the same way they had come. And once more, Dalgard answered his unspoken question. We're looking for another door into the city, one long known to these tribesmen. Rafe would gladly have run, but he could not move faster than his guides, and while their pace seemed deliberate, they did not pause to rest. The whole city, he decided, had to be honeycombed with these drains. 
After traversing a fourth tunnel, they climbed out of the flood onto a dry passage that wormed along, almost turning on itself at times. Side passages ran out from this corridor like rootlets from a parent root, and small parties of mermen broke from the regiment to follow certain ones, leaving without orders or farewells. At the fifth of these, Dalgard touched Rafe's arm and drew him aside. This is our way. Tensely, the scout waited. If the stranger refused, then the one plan the scout had formed during the past half hour would fail. He still held to the hope that Rafe, with what Rafe carried, could succeed in the only project that would mean, perhaps not his safety nor the safety of the tribe he now marched among, but the eventual safety of Astra itself, and the safety of all the harmless people of the sea, the little creatures of the grass and the sky, of his own land at Homeport. He would have to force Rafe into action if need be. He did not use the mind touch. He knew now the unspoken resentment that followed that. If it became necessary, Dalgard's hands balled into fists. He would strike down the stranger and take from him. Swiftly, he turned his thoughts from that. It might be easy, now that he had established mental contact with his off-worlder, for the other to pick up a thought as vivid as that. But luckily, Rafe obediently turned into the side passage with the six mermen who were to attack this particular point. The way grew narrower until they crept on hands and knees between rough walls that were not of the same construction as the larger tunnels. The smaller mermen had no difficulty in getting through, but twice Rafe's equipment belt caught on projections and he had to fight his way free. They crawled one by one into a ventilation shaft, much like the one he had climbed at the center. Dalgard's whisper reached him. We're now in the building that houses their sky ship. I know that one, Rafe returned almost eagerly, glad at last to be so close to familiar territory. He climbed up the handholds and footholds, the sea monster lamp disclosed, wishing the mermen ahead would speed up. The grill at the head of the shaft had been removed, and the invaders arose one by one into a dim and dusty place of motionless machinery, which by all tangible evidence had not been entered for some time. But the cautious manner in which the sea people strung out to approach the far door argued that the same might not be true beyond. For the first time, Rafe noticed that his human companion now held one of the knives of the people, and he drew his stun gun. But he could not forget the flamethrowers, that might at that very moment be trained upon the other side of that door by the aliens. They might be walking into a trap. He half expected one of those disconcerting thought answers from Dalgard, but the scout was playing safe. Nothing must upset the stranger. Confronted by what had to be done, he might be influenced into acting for them. So Dalgard strode softly ahead, apparently not interested in Rafe. One of the mermen worked at the door, using the point of his spear as a lever. Here again was a vista of machinery, but these machines were alive. A faint hum came from their casings. The mermen scattered, taking cover, a move copied by the two humans. The pilot remained in hiding, but he saw one of the furred people running on as light-footed as a shadow. Then his arm drew back and he cast his spear. Ray fancied he could hear a faint whistle as the weapon cut through the air. There was a cry, and the merman ran on, vanishing into the shadows, to return a second or two later, wiping stains from his weapon. Out of their places of concealment, his fellows gathered about him, and the humans followed. Now they were fronted by a ramp leading up, 
and the mermen took it quickly, their bare scaled feet setting up a whispering echo that was drowned by the clop of Rafe's boots. Once more the party was alert, ready for trouble, and taking his cue from them, he kept his stun gun in his hand. But the maneuver at the head of the ramp surprised him, for though he had heard no signal, all the party but one plastered their bodies back against the wall, Dalgard pulling Rafe into position beside him. The scout's muscular bare arm pinned the pilot into a narrow space. One merman stood at the crack of the door at the top of the ramp. He pushed the barrier open and crept in. Meanwhile, those who waited poised their spears, all aimed at that door. Ray fingered the button on his gun to spray, as he had when he had faced the attack of the scavengers in the arena tunnels. There was a cry, a shout with a summons in it, and the venturesome merman thudded back through the door, but he was not alone. Two of the black guardsmen, their flamers spitting fiery death, ran behind him, and the curling lash of one of those flames almost wreathed the runner before he swung aside. Rafe fired without consciously aiming. Both the sentries fell forward to slide limply down the ramp. Then Dalgard pulled him on. The way is open now, he said. This is it. There was an excited exultation in his voice. <laughs>